Hey everyone, welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, a podcast that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product designers, and other industry professionals. This podcast is run by Macro Design and Invent and hosted by Philip Belecha. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to putting your product on the shelf. We're taking you step-by-step step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Now onto the show. The Product Startup, Episode 43. Chris Mitchell from MFG.com talks about soliciting quotes from manufacturers and the results of the MFG.com survey entitled, How Will President Trump's Proposed Trade Policies Affect U.S. Manufacturing? Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, where we talk about turning ideas into successful products step by step. I'm Philip Blitza, and thanks for listening today. In the last episode, Stacy Marking talked about all-natural insecticides. So make sure to check out episode 42 if you want to learn more about how she used grant-sponsored research to refine her products and how she took a DIY approach to testing, designing, making, bottling, and labeling them. We've got a lot to talk about today, so let's get started. Hi, Chris. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Hey, so I'm really excited to have you on. And I haven't really talked about this on the show at all, but I used MFG.com probably for the first time 10 years ago. And I was working for a small business owner here in Houston, relatively small shop, about 30 employees that manufactures hydraulically driven generators for the emergency vehicle market. And we were creating some prototypes for a new product and the existing manufacturers that we have here in Houston just couldn't fit us in for that one piece and it was going to be really expensive. So I went on MFG.com, created a profile, submitted my model and got a quote back from someone here in Austin that's pretty close by. Um, and we had the part, I would say, within a week for a insanely competitive price. I mean, it was just amazing to get a one-off 12-inch piece of aircraft-grade aluminum for you know relatively short amount of time and, and low cost. So I think that was a, a huge win for the company. Yeah, that's excellent. That's a, that's a great success story. And we see a lot of those uh, kind of things happen every day. You know, we have uh, people who come in and use the marketplace for projects of all sizes, you know, from things like that, a one-off prototype to you know, full production runs, many, many thousands of pieces. Even we've even uh, got a few projects in the pipeline right now with people asking for over a million pieces of whatever item it is they're sourcing. So we see them of all sizes. I'm glad to hear you had a success in your local area. It was amazing. And it basically turned me on to the whole idea of having somebody like MFG.com that can act as a broker to connect us to all these smaller shops. And really, that's what it was is uh, we were able to reach shops that don't have that marketing reach and don't have the, you know, they, they haven't knocked on our door personally because we're probably mm -hmm. too small for them and they might be too small for us, but somehow we, mm -hmm. we sure. met in the middle. That's excellent. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly, that's exactly what we aim to do. There's a, uh, you know, a lot of the shops that we have, you know, they're not large, so they don't have a lot of a budget to, uh, you know, hire salespeople or go out and try to, you know, run ads. I mean, they're, they're, a lot of times that's, you know, just something that's very, very foreign to them. They they want to focus on making great parts. So it's difficult for them to do that, that marketing a lot of times. And then, of course, even if they'd want to reach you, how would they know where to find you, you know? So right. um, that's really the central central benefit of MFG.com is it's a central place for uh, people to, to find each other. Yeah, and we're definitely going to dive into some of that as we wrap up the show because I want to talk about the process that it takes to get an RFQ through. But I wanted to look at the survey that you conducted recently of U.S. manufacturers, and it was interesting to see people's perspectives of how 
President Trump's policies would affect manufacturing here in the U.S. So can you talk a little bit about what the overall findings were, and then we can just kind of dive into some of the results? The survey was uh, conducted against about 45,000 members of our marketplace, so we mailed out a lot of surveys. Out of that, we got back 850 responses. They were sent to people on both sides of the marketplace, so people who are buyers in the marketplace, like you were when you did your project, uh, and then obviously the suppliers, which are the job shops. We got a pretty even mix of answers back from both sides, and we specifically designed the survey such that you know, we sent a separate version to each of those groups so that we could compare the responses because obviously they would have two very different perspectives. And as we expected, there were a lot of areas where they, they simply saw things differently. One example of that is in the idea of if there were tariffs and other you know, trade barriers erected, what would be the result? Would it encourage or increase manufacturing business in the United States? Interestingly, the buyers in our marketplace sort of had their response, well, if you put barriers in place on China and Mexico, we'll just find another low-cost country to purchase from, whereas the suppliers tended to think, yeah, if you do that, we're going to see a lot of business return to the United States. So you had a little bit of a disagreement with how they perceive things. But in other areas, they were very much in agreement. I would say an overarching area of agreement was in wanting to bring manufacturing jobs back to the United States. And so you saw buyers who felt like it would be fair to penalize U.S. companies who produce overseas for importation into the United States. And we saw suppliers obviously agree with that. They wanted to, uh, they wanted companies who produce, American companies who produce their products in other countries to be, to be penalized if they were producing those products in those other countries for importation into the United States. So there was a lot of agreement there, I would say, on the whole. We saw pretty broad support for the policies that President Trump has put forth. Now, this was based on a lot of his campaign promises. The, the survey was conducted just after he was elected, and then we worked on the report during the time when he was preparing his administration. So well, when this report was released, he was this was just before inauguration. And as we all know, there's been a lot of activity since then, but the report contains a lot of you know really interesting information. Why did you think it was important to even conduct the survey, or why did you th do that this year? I think I've been a member of MFG.com for, like I said, the last maybe 10 years, and I haven't seen too many of these types of surveys. In previous years, and I guess it was probably from maybe 2008 or nine to 2013, we conducted on, a, uh, I think, a quarterly basis, there was a a survey that we did called MFG Watch. And that was basically designed to assess uh, the state of the manufacturing industry as seen through the, you know, the members of our marketplace. And that was a regular thing. That that, that was sort of um, dropped around 2013. I'm not exactly sure why I was not here then. Mm -hmm. We reenacted that last year. So in 2015, we, re we released our first MFG Watch report, um, which was sort of a general survey of manufacturing. The Trump and manufacturing report is really sort of an interim report, but obviously the president ran on a platform made up in large part of bringing manufacturing jobs back to the United States. Mm -hmm. And the accepted wisdom or the received wisdom at that point um, was that free trade was um, the best way forward for America. But obviously, when you talk about um, the Rust Belt areas of the country, what um, President Trump refers to as the forgotten um, voices in America, 
those areas of the country have obviously suffered uh, great loss of jobs um, in the years, you know, in the last couple of decades uh, since NAFTA was signed. Um, And so we thought it would be really interesting to get the perspective of our users rather than uh, relying on, you know, what you might read in various, you know, trade publications or in the media and rather than just purely relying on what President Trump said he was going to do and what the result would be or the effect would be. We thought it'd be interesting is to find out what our members think. And they're right in the, I mean, they're at ground zero of what we're talking about here. Right. And so um, we thought it was pretty, it would be really useful to give give voice to those people's opinions. There's so much journalism out there that's written based, uh, you know, op-ed pieces written by people who think they know what's going to happen. But we wanted to find out exactly what the real people who are doing this work thought. So that's why we conducted the the survey. Yeah, and you guys are really uniquely positioned to be able to do this. In addition to following up with this, hopefully in the next year or two, when you see some of the changes in policy take effect, there's going to be some sort of an impact and you can kind of gauge what the difference has been with between, you know, perception and reality. You're exactly right. That's what we intend to do is to follow up on this in a year and maybe over the next, you know, three or four years. I mean just see exactly how things play out. So going through the rest of the report, was there anything else that you thought that was a bit surprising that you didn't expect people to answer in you know quite this way? There was one thing. So when we created the questions, of course, we wanted to ask people's opinions. So opinions are one thing. You know, you can ask someone, what do you think of this or that? And they'll give you an opinion. And maybe it's an opinion. And maybe it's a, you know, a very forceful, strong opinion. But we wanted to go one step beyond that. And we wanted to say, okay, so we, we know this is what you think. If that's how you feel, we want to then test how committed you are to that opinion. So in our questions, we'll have things in the survey. We have questions that are of the nature of, um, do you think we should level um, tariffs against Chinese and Mexican-made products? And you know, there'd be a great many people who said yes. And then the next question would follow up with, if those tariffs would result in increased costs for consumer goods, or industrial inputs, would you still be in favor of those? And so the thing that we found was really interesting is that on the supply side, there's almost a feeling of, I don't care what it costs, we need to punish these other countries. We need to put uh, some, we need to levy you know, tariffs against them so that we have a better competitive environment in the United States. I think it was a little bit of a, an, it is an unknown of how that's going to balance out you know, are there more jobs in the United States? Perhaps yes, but does that mean that then, you know, everything costs more? Maybe yes. Um, and maybe, you know, people prefer to actually, they'd rather have the job and have the option to spend the money on the more, you know, expensive everyday things or not. But I think they want to have the jobs here, even if it's going to cost a little bit more. So that was an, that was an interesting one. Um, and it was really strong on the supply side. The buy side was a little bit less you know supportive of these kinds of measures particularly if they're going to increase the cost of you know inputs to to their industrial processes that was an interesting one on the buyer side I, I guess I get understand where they're coming from I've got a couple products that I'm working on now myself just under my own brand and the difference between a US manufacturer versus abroad can be 30 40% uh just on unit costs and I'm not even talking about setup or one time fees and I would right. be happy to absorb those costs and pay those costs if then I push that on to the buyers here, you know. But on Amazon, for example, on a twenty dollar unit price item, I will have a 
40% swing in demand if I just drop the price two or three dollars. So the sensitivity to consumers on price is just huge right now for at least certain types of products. Absolutely. That's the $64,000 question is exactly how elastic is demand. Uh, you know, when, when prices and if prices increase, what actually happens to demand for products? And I think that's, for a lot of people, that's an unknown. It's a very difficult thing for them to extrapolate out and think how this is going to be in the future. So I think at the at the root right now, they're just saying, look, we want our jobs back. We want to be able to work and earn a living sure. and then spend that money the way we see fit. So I think that's how I would interpret the answer. You know, flipping in the question around, if you had everybody on the same playing field, so to speak, and so all costs would go up at the same rate and competition was fair, I think consumers would have a hard time swallowing that all of a sudden now their products might be the 50% more expensive. Mm -hmm. But at least they would all be that way and you wouldn't have that hole in the dam, so to speak, where there'd be products getting through that are taking the lion's share of the uh, sales. Right. Agreed. There's a few other interesting insights, too. We asked about uh, NAFTA. Should it be, you know, should it be abandoned or should it be renegotiated? Very, very strong, clear support to renegotiate NAFTA. So there definitely seems to be um, an across the board perception that that NAFTA is a bad deal. Um, and so when you look at the survey results, um, you know, the, the, it's over 60 percent of the, of the respondents said renegotiate NAFTA. Uh, there was about 10 percent who just really weren't sure. Um, and, of course, there was some who wanted to keep it as is and some who wanted to withdraw completely. But very clear support to renegotiate it. When it came to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, which is there's not actually had not actually been enacted as you probably know um but was still you know in the sort of the negotiation phase uh there was real strong uh, support for withdrawing but what's interesting is uh you know people seem to have um you know a, a, st a strong feeling of you know wanting to withdraw from it and that it was harmful but a large percentage of people just weren't sure so it's kind of those something like 37, 38% of the people just really weren't sure what the impact of the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, would be. So that was that was fascinating. Um, it just kind of showed that that agreement has not, you know, been presented in a way that people really understand what was involved. It was kind of presented in a, a fairly general way, and I think most people just were unsure of what was going to happen. But you know, President Trump has has already killed that. So it's a little bit moot at this point, but still that was an interesting finding that there was just so much uncertainty about what it even was. I noticed that as well in the report. And I think MFG.com is in a great position to even educate your buyers and suppliers on some of this legislation. If you're able to produce content that's not biased in any way, because as you know, we can go on media and it will be biased one way or another. And there's always slants, even just by choosing to run or not run a story. There's some bias there. Mm -hmm. Seems like there's a, a void in the industry for for getting some of that information out to the public in a way that is easily understood. You know, using charts and sure. graphs because business owners don't have time to read pages of legislation. Well, yeah, that is the big challenge. I mean, I don't know if anybody had had time to read it. It was a little bit like the uh, what was the the tax plan or something a few years ago when they say, well, let's pass it and then we can go back and read it. Um, you know, I just I don't know that a lot of people <laughs> I don't know that a lot of people have had the time to read that agreement. But again, it's, so it's it appears to be dead at this point anyway. So um, I guess it's to some extent it's a it's a moot point. One thing that I noticed that was interesting when you were talking about NAFTA is that 
people expected the exports to decrease from the U.S. if we withdrew from NAFTA as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. So they're understanding that this is a two-way street, and it seems like they're okay with that being a little bit more isolationist. I agree with you. That's the same interpretation that I get from it. There's all of these types of things have obviously have costs and have consequences, and I think you know everyone realizes this is a, the things that are being put forth sort of are a move away from free trade. Which, you know, as mentioned earlier, has been the sort of received wisdom all these years that, you know, free trade is what we need to do. We're moving. It looks like we're, we're about to be moving in a different direction. And yet you see that people are okay with the fact that things are going to be a little bit more expensive and there's going to be maybe a little bit less free flow of, of goods across borders. I think that shows you the degree to which people feel frustrated and left out, you know, with what's, with what's happened in the last you know, couple of decades. I don't think you measured it in this report, but I've definitely noticed that one effect to people losing their jobs here is the automation that's just going through all the industries, but especially manufacturing. You know, I used to work at places where uh, everything was dominantly assembled by hand and you had maybe 30 or 40 people doing that work. And now due to us using some sub suppliers or other people that have automation or even bringing some automation in house that's cut the staff drastically down to maybe only a few people that are involved in the process while raising output for the manufacturers and these are all manufacturers that are based here in the US um so in a way we've got more output than we had 10 years ago and we're using less people to do it yep that's correct we published a piece on our facebook recently um, it was from a story that ran on, I believe, ABC about bringing manufacturing back to the United States and competing with these foreign countries. It was about a, a guy in, uh, in Mississippi. He's the, I don't know, he's the economic development person at this, uh, in this county of Mississippi. Um, and they're being, they've been quite successful um, with doing exactly what you said. And, and it seems that, you know, with robots and, robo- and automation in, in factories, um, it really sort of starts to level the playing field. And right now, what you've got with with China or Mexico, particularly China, uh, is is a combination of uh, currency manipulation that keeps Chinese-made goods cheap and then a very low cost of labor. If, uh, as is supported in our survey, China is labeled as a currency manipulator and some remedial measures are put into place, you could theoretically eliminate some of that difference, um, the competitive advantage of them artificially, you know, lowering the value of the currency. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to, if you remove that from the equation and basically you have American workers who want to work for one price and Chinese or Mexican workers who are willing to work at a fraction of that, it's very difficult to compete. But when you bring automation into it and, and those countries are moving to automation as well, you really get to have a lot more level playing field and then you have you know, transportation costs begin to be significant. You know, bringing something all the right. way from China versus bringing it from, you know, the next state in the United States. So the the other trend that's revealed in that piece is that you know factory automation. Yes, there's far fewer jobs, but the salaries are about triple. The people who are operating and maintaining and programming these these robotic systems are making a great deal more than someone who worked on the shop floor in years gone by. So it seems like um, there's an opportunity there for people to move up the pay scale. Of course, they're going to have to go and and, and get the skills to right. yes yeah exactly and there's gonna be fewer jobs in the beginning but who knows where it goes in the future honestly i think this is just something that can't be ignored it's not whether you choose to play the game or not you're in the game and you have That's to decide right. how you're going to respond to it do you have any experience 
with other markets like maybe Germany or Japan? Because I know from my experience, at least in Germany, they have always had this high importance on quality and automation. And I think they've kept a lot of their manufacturing in country. I'm not sure what it's done in the last five years, but have you seen that to still be true or are you aware of those markets? I don't have a great deal of perspective on that. I mean, I certainly have the same awareness you have of German quality, German engineering. I mean, you know, the, some of the most respected automotive brands in the world are obviously German. They have a reputation for producing very high quality products. In our marketplace, we don't see a, an extreme extremely large volume of work being posted or won in Germany. I think Europe is a little bit of a of a quiet uh, area in terms of that. I mean, there's a, with Europe, there's a lot of the trade is, like you said, it's kept in country or it's within the European Union or people, if people are sourcing for a lower cost production, they're usually going to, to Asia. They're not usually sourcing from Europe to the United States, for example. Sure. And uh, conversely, our U.S. suppliers are typically are not selling manufacturing services to Europe. So I, I couldn't really speak authoritatively to the trends, you know, in terms of Germany. Have you seen other, any other trends either within the United States or even outside the country that you think that were interesting that might not be included in the report? Um, well, you know, our marketplace over the years has, be has begun to be very focused on the United States. Until the election of President Trump, we were seeing an increase in interest in Chinese uh, manufacturers joining our marketplace. It's now become a little bit questionable. We also had, uh, you know, people from Mexico, companies from Mexico who were suppliers in our marketplace. We've started to hear from them. You know, there was a, a company in Mexico that said, we think we're going to stop being a member. It's looking like it's getting ready to get, you know, difficult to do business in the United States. So we're kind of going to cut our losses now. With China, we've had a fair amount of growth and interest until the election. And now it, it remains to be seen. We're not sure where it's going to go from here. And it's really early. You know, there's a lot of things have been suggested that will happen, but nothing has actually happened yet. So I think that for a lot of companies, they, they're kind of, it's, it's a little bit of a wait and see. They're ready to, ready to move forward if, if the way gets clear, but they're also ready to pull out if they get to be, you know, a lot of barriers to doing business here. Yeah, it's interesting how much the effect of legislation and regulations has on business. And that's probably the two areas that small business owners and even product designers like myself, we don't tend to spend a whole lot of time on, uh, probably because you just can't control any of that. We as a marketplace, we hear it from both sides on our of our customers, and we've come to some of the same conclusions uh, in terms of how we conduct business in our marketplace that are reflected in this report and that, you know, probably if you asked any manufacturer in the United States, they would feel about competing against uh, low-cost countries like China and Mexico. Um, you know, we've done a lot over the last uh, year to try to level the playing field because we know that these countries sometimes are competing um, unfairly. And we also know that sometimes buyers who come in, a lot of times they will be small companies and they get really excited, you know, just about the idea of sourcing something internationally and being an international uh, business and purchasing services from, from China, from Mexico. But we've learned over the years there's a lot of risk involved in that. You know, a lot of times that low price um, looks low until you really start getting into the difficulties of conducting business internationally. So we've put up um, guardrails, if you will, within our marketplace to help those those businesses with um, you know people who are sourcing, whether they're engineers or sourcing professionals that don't have extensive experience with sourcing internationally. We've put up guardrails to help them realize it's pretty risky to go to some of these foreign countries, particularly Asian countries, um, just because of language barriers, cultural differences, just the sheer distance of doing business. 
payment methodologies, which are very challenging if you consider China. Um, there's a, there's a lot that goes into it, and so for a lot of people, you know, signing up with MFG, they all of a sudden they're they've got this immensely powerful tool to be able to source manufacturers anywhere in the world, and they kind of want to use it. And we're having to say to them, "All right, you can do it, but we want you to understand what the risks are, and we want to help them. We want to help them make the best decision for their business. And sometimes, you know, saving a couple of dollars on a widget is just not worth the." The additional risk that comes along with it. And on the flip side, we've done a lot to help the suppliers. So our job shops that are, you know, our paying members in our marketplace, um, for a long time, they, you know, expressed to us their concerns about competing with Chinese companies that were, you know, undercutting their prices significantly. So for them, we also put in tools to allow them to identify buyers who are sourcing to China. And we basically tell them, you know, if you see this buyer sourcing to China and they frequently award to China, don't waste your time quoting there. Um, and we've given them the tools to really be able to see that clearly so that they can focus on buyers who really are, these are U.S. companies, U.S. job shops I'm speaking of, so they can, they can actually compete against other U.S. job shops for U.S.-based business. You know, it may come as a surprise that that's only been we've only put that in place in the past year, but but that's what that's how it's actually played out. So we are uh, trying to strike a fair balance where people from other countries still can come in and compete in our marketplace and win business, and they still do. But we're also trying to provide the the transparency, if you will, both for the buyers and the suppliers in our marketplace to really understand exactly what they're up against. So as a buyer, you can create a request for quote, and in that request for quote, you get to pick the types of manufacturers that this goes out to or what type of product this is. And I'm talking about specifically like sheet metal or machining or that type of thing. Correct. What are the types of uh, manufacturers that you predominantly work with? Well, the, yeah, the, um, the manufacturers that we work with primarily provide plastic, metal, or rubber parts. That's basically what it is. And the, and the preponderance of the business that we see here is, is metal. So it could be machining, it can be stamping, it can be cutting, um, but usually the, the the material is you know various types of metal. You know that's what we see all day long. You have the process exactly correct. If someone comes to us with a CAD drawing of their design. They create a request for quote. During that process, they can indicate what industry this is for. Uh, they can indicate uh, obviously the material um, and their intended use of it. And what that does is that helps us match them to people who have experience in that area. So, you know, there's a lot of aerospace, um, there's a lot of automotive, there's a lot of medical products. So by s selecting the industry, as well as, you know, the type of process by which you'd like the product to be made and the material, we can match you to job shops that have that, that particular expertise. There's times when someone is not this is not particular, you know, sometimes someone will come and develop a part and they, they'll say, you know, I'm not really concerned about exactly how this part is made as long as it's made according to my specifications. And in that case, um, MFG has an engineering team uh, that vets every RFQ that comes through the marketplace. So they review every single drawing that comes through. And if um, the buyer requests, they will make a recommendation. They're mechanical engineers. They will make a recommendation of what what process is probably best for that product. So you don't have to have the answers to all the questions. The fundamental thing that you do have to have is the CAD drawing. And the reason that we do that is because it's, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, 
our suppliers um, pay to be members of the marketplace. And we want to be sure that we give them quality opportunities to quote on. So fundamental to that is having a good, clear drawing with dimensions so that they know exactly what they're quoting on. There's no guessing. You know, we don't take scanned, you know, drawings on a napkin or something like that. Um, and I will say also uh, that that the service is completely free to people who are sourcing. So you can come in and use our marketplace to try to locate a manufacturer at absolutely zero cost. There's no catches, you know. There's no upsells. There's no commissions or anything like that. So it's 100% free to use. And as people are creating an RFQ, is there something that you've noticed or that you've got reports of that makes it a really good, effective RFQ? And then also the flip side. What have you seen that just doesn't really work that well or what have manufacturers had issues with in the past? Yeah, the main thing is just that it's very clear. Um, it just needs to, they just, you know, obviously the, the drawing is important. It's got to be fully dimensional, which means that they, need to, they need to call out all the dimensions. The tolerance is how, how precisely the part needs to be manufactured. That's the biggest, that's the biggest thing. Beyond that, um, getting a response or quotes, if you will, on your RFQ will depend a lot on, um, you know, things like what quantity you're ordering. So you mentioned a part where you did uh, a single piece. Um, depending on the size of the complexity and therefore the cost of that piece, you may or may not get good response. So it's it's not about trying to inflate the quantities. We want those quantities to be accurate. But, you know, the kind of response you get does, it, it does vary by, you know, how big the job is. If you want a one-off thing, you may get a very small company that can make that that one part, you know, but if you had a lot of parts, you're going to get larger companies and probably more of them that are going to be really competing for your business. So there's a little bit of something there for everybody. Uh, one thing we see frequently in terms of doesn't work really well is when people, maybe they have an, an idea or an invention that they've come up with and, you know, how we've we've all had our inventions and we we're pretty sure that it's the greatest thing anyone's ever thought of and a lot of times we'll see them come and they'll say well I have this idea that I really want to get this product made but I don't have any money to make it so I'm looking for manufacturers that want to make it and be my partner that generally doesn't just doesn't fly because it, it just happens too often and, and it's very rare that right. it actually turns into something. So it's best if people want to source manufacturers and really get top-notch companies that they come with a design that's very clear. They've got all their, their T's crossed, their I's dotted. They know exactly what they want. And if they find the appropriate manufacturer that they're ready to do business. I mean, that's really what works out best. And these guys are, these are our suppliers. They've seen it all. I mean, we have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of RFQs every month. They're pretty quick to pick up on who's really serious about doing business and who's just trying to figure out how much it might cost to, to make their product and then go away. Yeah, and you bring up an interesting point because one of the key design factors in any product is the manufacturing cost. And I have personal experience in working for all sorts of companies with manufacturing and I can tell you the costs vary wildly. I mean, even within MFG.com, I will get quotes that could be you know 50% off sure. from each other just based on individual manufacturers' capabilities and how much stock they have on hand and all sorts of other things. As a buyer, it's really tough to design for manufacturing without getting some input. And obviously, it helps to have that relationship with a manufacturer where you can send over a drawing and they can give you some feedback. But how can we best use the service on a new project that maybe it, it does need some iteration or, or you get some initial quotes back and you're thinking, gosh, this is way more expensive than I expected it to be. I need to do some rework. 
Sure. I mean, when you create the RFQ, you can simply indicate, you know, this is my drawing as I have it now, my best, my best effort. Um, but I'm open to uh, feedback uh, and suggestions. So yeah, d- design designing for manufacturability is really important, and it's, I mean, obviously, uh, you know. It can make have a big impact on what the final what the final product looks like. So we we encourage that we encourage that kind of communication, and we encourage our suppliers to to do that really as a way of building the relationship. I mean, sometimes when people join a, a marketplace, they may get the idea that you know, well, I'm just going to go in there and bid low on projects to to win some. And we actually encourage them to go at it a little differently to try to build a relationship and try to come to the table with suggestions on how to improve the product to come to the table with questions to understand exactly what the buyer is trying to accomplish because a lot of times you know the shop has expertise that the buyer is completely unaware of i mean it may be a new technology it may be a new manufacturing process it could be all the kinds of different factors exactly as you described but the key is is communication and we encourage that we've got of course good communication tools built into the platform I have to say that some of the smaller manufacturers in particular are really good at communicating back and forth. Yes. And I made some great contacts with manufacturers in the past just by doing that back and forth and and them answering questions. And that leads into other conversations like, hey, by the way, we can do your packaging for you or we could do some staging or we're partnered with a fulfillment warehouse and we can even ship your product somewhere. But- and and you wouldn't really get into those types of conversations without uh, just going out there and, and and getting quotes done and engaging in the in your. Suppliers. That's right. That, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, one of the nice things about this RFQ model is coming to the table as a buyer, coming to the table with a dimension drawing. It's showing the suppliers you're serious about your project. You know, someone has taken the t- someone's made the investment of time or money to actually have drawings made of the parts uh, that you need to source. You know, that's a great first step that lets them realize this is a legitimate, you know, potential uh, customer in a conversation. And and the matching services that I mentioned earlier based on, you know, industry and the type of process needed for the part, et cetera, that puts you in front of the right kind of suppliers right out of the gate. It's a totally different thing from doing a, a Google search or picking up a you know, an old Thomas Register directory they used to produce or any of these other places that you can go where you're basically just seeing a directory of companies, um, even, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of them around. Uh, you know, if you go and look at a directory, you've still got to call those companies individually. MFG just allows you just to put your drawings up one time, describe the project one time, and let people from all over the world, if you choose, or just in the United States, um, bid on the project. So you're, you're right away you're talking to a reduced group of people who really are interested in your project and really do have the expertise to, to make your parts. I've definitely experienced that other side of bidding. Like you said, there's some suppliers that I have to deal with that don't produce the type of parts that MFG specializes in. So I go outside the service to quote, and it just takes way longer, even if you're sending the same message. But people have different types of questions and that maybe you didn't put in the original RFQ and you just spend a lot of your time responding. And that right there is a great point. It's a small little subtlety. We actually just released a feature in our communications tools. It seems silly now when you think about it, but it's basically like a like a reply all in an email. So now if you're a buyer and you log in and you get a message from someone at, that asks you a question, you're like, shoot, that's something that everybody's going to want to know. It's just a checkbox before you send your your reply and it goes to everyone who has quoted on your job. So um it's a it's a powerful way and there's many 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 features that we have that allow you to do a lot of work very quickly and efficiently. It's a great tool near the end of the process if you 
let's say you decide to award, then you know you contact the manufacturer, you arrange payment if you need it up front, and the work commences? That's correct. Uh, so you will get um, X number of quotes on your job, the, uh, depending on how exciting it, it appears to job shops. If you have a project out there, uh, your parts are out there, and you're not getting, uh, you're not getting the love, um, you can contact your sourcing advisor. We have a team of dedicated uh, sourcing advisors and marketplace coordinators that exist solely to help buyers be successful in sourcing on MFG. Again, no cost. Um, but if you've got a an RFQ out there and you're not getting uh, the kind of response that you had hoped, you're not getting enough quotes, um, they are they can come in and, and boost that out to suppliers and make sure that they're aware of it and try to get more quotes. So then when you get your quotes, we've got tools in the application that allows you to um, compare them side by side, which is another benefit of using the marketplace. You know, if you if you take the other route we just talked about where you go out to some directories and you contact a bunch of different companies, you're going to get quotes back in various different formats. And it gets to be dicey trying to actually figure out, you know, how do we compare all of these mm-hmm, things. Mm-hmm. With MFG, you've got them all arranged in a table where you it's apples to apples. So you can see, you know, this is what this guy charges, this is what that guy charges. You can very clearly see itemized what each company charges. So we give you a quote comparison tool in the application. And then it's easy also just to download all of your quotes to Excel. You can manipulate them however you need to um, to make your decision. Once you award the job in our system, awarding the job just essentially means picking the supplier. Um, you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily issuing a legally binding PO at that point, And that's just because a lot of companies, larger companies that use our system particularly, they're not going to issue a PO through our system. They're going to issue a PO directly through their own internal systems. But you do, you know, award the job, choose the supplier within our system. And that's important because that opens the door later for you to rate that supplier um, and to keep the communication going about that job and to get things like production updates. So, once they start making your your parts, it's very easy for them to send you updates via MFG.com so you can see exactly where your job is. In terms of payment, uh, you mentioned prepayment, I think, or maybe just said payment, but we don't have a built-in payment system there. We encourage people to use things like uh, PayPal or a credit card um, or even things like uh, escrow.com if it's a big job. Um, which these are all just very safe ways to make payment. And then if for whatever reason the supplier doesn't live up to their end of the bargain, you've got options to get to get a refund. We don't encourage people to do prepayment on jobs just because it's we, we find over time it's not really the best way to go. Um, it comes down to a case-by-case basis. But particularly if you're dealing with companies in other countries, it's um, we, we, we definitely discourage prepayment. Most of my experience with MFG.com is from U.S.-based suppliers. I actually haven't used any suppliers outside the U.S. through MFG.com. And I have to say that everyone's been really professional and the quotes that come back are, I mean, even though the, there's a huge variance in between them, they're all pretty competitive. Yep. It's good to get that, that response back from everybody and to make those connections. Sure. So that's one of the key differences between U.S. manufacturing and the manufacturers abroad where in the U.S., if something is not produced properly, you have a little bit of that leeway with a manufacturer where they can maybe rework some of the parts or you'll kind of come to some mutual terms, mutual agreement, or they might be able to knock off a little bit on the price to make it work. There's just a little bit more flexibility versus abroad. It is what it is, Correct. and you're usually paying 30% up front, if not more, and 
at the end of the day, if, if the products aren't made to spec, even if it is the manufacturer's fault, you're still out that 30% and you might even have to eat that in order to continue doing business. With that's them. correct. I mean, that's the that's the risk. I mean, that, that's part of why, like I mentioned, the, the, the guardrails we have at the beginning. This is part of what we try to explain to some of these buyers. You know, some of these other countries, the culture is just different. You know, in the United States, we tend to we tend to give something of the benefit of the doubt to the buyer. Um, not necessarily so in other countries. We do have a little bit of recourse, though. Um, occasionally, you know, a buyer sources something in China. Uh, they get a, they're not satisfied with the product. We do have a little bit of leverage. We're not judges, and we don't do arbitration or anything like that. But we do have the leverage of telling a supplier, "You've had a complaint from this buyer. You need to rectify this, or you can be removed from the MFG.com marketplace." It doesn't necessarily put money back into the buyer's hands, but for a lot of these companies, a significant portion of their business comes from their marketing via the MFG.com platform. If you shut that off, it's quite painful for them. So occasionally, not often, but occasionally we have to take that route. And usually when we do that, we find that it gets it gets resolved pretty quickly. We still don't encourage doing prepayment, but you know, occasionally if someone gets into a snag, we can we can help that way. It's the, the cost of getting those low price items to begin with, I guess, you know. It's always a risk. So what happens if you don't award the quote? I know in the past sometimes uh, there have been a couple products that just had to be reworked for manufacturing um, or the price just came back too high. Yep. I know that if you don't award an RFQ, it can count against you. But what is that relative penalty? At what point do you start getting into trouble where – manufacturers won't give you any quotes because they think that you're just a door knocker. Right, exactly. Another one of the features uh, along the lines of transparency that we've introduced just in the last year is a, a buyer's award ratio. Every buyer account, when you log in, you will see your award ratio on the left-hand side of your dashboard. It's very prominent. There's no way to miss it. We understand, and I think most people will understand who are in business, or most people are reasonable and know that not every job that you have quoted is going to get awarded. Just exactly like you said, sometimes the price just doesn't fit with the budget. Uh, other times, maybe the project gets canceled beyond your control. There's all sorts of things that can happen that would uh, would cause you not to award. Uh, but if you are a you know, if you're serious about business and you're coming to our marketplace, you know, sincerely looking for a supplier, you're going to award a reasonable number of your jobs. We think anything over about 60 to 70 percent is very good. That's given you basically 30% of the time, you know, you're not awarding the job. We aren't currently penalizing you in terms of removing you from the marketplace, uh, but we do pay very close attention to how awards work and, you know, who's doing what. Uh, anyone who's, you know, uses the system to try to, you know, have some shenanigans or has, a, you know, has posted a lot of RFQs and then ultimately didn't award any of them, eventually at some point we're going to say, okay, look, it looks like our, our marketplace is not providing you with what it is that you're looking for. So we're going to ask you not to post anymore. That's very, very, very exceedingly rare. Um, what does happen is when suppliers look at the buyer's RFQ, they can see, as I mentioned earlier, they can see that buyer's award ratio. But the award ratio also includes the number of RFQs posted versus awarded. So there's a percentage, you know, maybe a 60% or a 70% award ratio. Um, but there's also the aggregate, I mean, the, uh, the, the actual numbers of RFQs posted and awarded. So if it's a brand new buyer, obviously they're not going to have, they're not going to have any kind of award ratio, but it's going to clearly say, you know, one out of one RFQ or zero out of one RFQ is awarded. And people realize that. And there's a place for those. 
We've got shops that are just getting started, too, that are trying to build a reputation, and they need to find some jobs that are not large, that they can they can do well and earn a positive rating from the, from the buyer. So there is a place for those kinds of jobs. But um, it's just about trying to strike a balance, just like what you would have in the real world, and making sure that buyers are not here wasting the time. You call them door knockers, you know, that they're not, you know, wasting our supplier's time with jobs that they have no real intention of quoting. One thing we don't like is when, you know, companies come in and post RFQs and get prices just to go and beat down their incumbent suppliers. That's considered right. a bad practice for us, and we catch on to that pretty quickly. And believe it or not, sometimes we have large companies that come in and do that, and they think because of the clout that they have, that they can do that, and we consider that sort of an abuse of our system, and so we we shut them down if it gets to be extreme. Yeah, absolutely. You have to be fair. And uh, my perspective on those types of negotiations, you know, I ask for pricing up front once. You need to give me your your best price the first time because you know going back and forth, uh, trying to have suppliers bid against each other is a race to the bottom. And at the end of the yeah. day, not just from the supplier's perspective, but as a buyer, uh, I want my suppliers to stay in business, uh, but I also want them to take me seriously. And if they're not going to take me seriously, if I start pulling their chain. Agreed. I absolutely 100% agree with that. And we all know that the cheapest option is uh, usually not the best. Is there something that we forgot to mention that you really want to make sure that people understand? Do you have any ideas of where people can get some rough approximation of manufacturing costs without actually talking to a manufacturer? I know from my experience, like using online RFQ tools that estimate manufacturing costs are not accurate at Correct. all. Correct. Yeah, there's a there's a you know, there are a number of companies now that have popped up that, that claim that they will give you an instantaneous quote. Um, that works best if you're looking for a three D printed part and probably in a prototype or a very small quantity. Simply because they can say, Okay, we know the dimensions of the product that's gonna take X amount of material, here's your price. If you talk about machined parts or any other of the more sophisticated manufacturing processes, that gets very, very difficult. And if they're going to give you a blanket price and try to feel safe in quoting that, of course, they're going to pad that a good deal in case they made a mistake. So, you know, there's a place for that. People who just want to, hey, I just need this prototype made quickly. I really don't care who makes it as long as it's exactly to spec. I really don't care if I pay a little bit more. Um... I always want the convenience of uploading it, getting a quote now, and pushing the order button. There's a place for that. Um, our marketplaces focus on more sophisticated manufacturing and more complicated manufacturing. So if you just need those quick prototypes, you might try one of those services. Of course, we have 3D printers all day long in our marketplace as well, and they will be able to engage you in one of those manufacturing for uh, or design for manufacturability conversations. But you know, that's kind of how that how it kind of the balance between those two. Well, Chris, thanks again for sharing all your wisdom and for sharing Surely. the results of your survey. Uh, where can people go and get their copy of the report on manufacturing as well as sign up to get some quotes from manufacturers? Both things you can get at MFG.com. If you go to MFG.com, you can sign up for a free buyer's account. You will immediately give, be given access to the marketplace. You'll be assigned a sourcing advisor right when you sign up. There's a link right on your dashboard to reach them. They'll probably reach out to you. They'll call you or email you to welcome you to the marketplace and make sure that um, you're able to find what you need. As for the manufacturing report, you can just Google MFG.com Trump Manufacturing, and you should see a link to the report. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Chris, for coming on the show. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Philip. Yeah, it's been great. Great talk with Chris about the state of manufacturing in the U.S. and soliciting quotes from manufacturers. Here are my top three takeaways. Number one. Manufacturing costs are increasing. 
Less than a decade ago, an employer asked me to train my counterpart in Singapore to do my engineering job. IT is not the only job that has been outsourced, but manufacturing costs in China have gone up almost 30% this year due to increased material costs, environmental regulations, and rising labor costs attributed to China's growing middle class. So what does all this mean? For consumers, I think costs are bound to increase whether or not we see new tariffs. Manufacturing exports from other countries may also increase, and maybe they'll keep costs down for a bit. As a consumer, I'd like to see the return of higher quality products designed to last longer with repairs or upgrades in mind. But I also know that the stock market and many investors are used to the double-digit growth brought on by this consumer spending. As manufacturing returns to the U.S., manufacturers are likely automating as much as they can, but of course, these types of capital investments are expensive. Number two, understand the elasticity of demand for your own products. What does a 20% increase in the sales price do to the demand for your products? Have you tested this? I've priced my $20 retail product at $16 all the way up to $20 to see the difference in consumer demand. The demand I saw at $20 was roughly 25% of what I saw at $16. So based on that, I was able to estimate what sales price will yield me the greatest profit per week. It's definitely worth for you to do this exercise so you're ready to take on any cost increases and decide how you will respond. Will you pass them on to the consumer? Number three, create well-defined RFQs. If you want the best pricing from more bidders, it's to your benefit to put some work up front by creating drawings and specifications with proper dimensions, tolerances, and other information. The suppliers will take you more seriously, and you'll reduce the risk up front by identifying more manufacturing issues. This is why I show the design for manufacture step before the make step in my roadmap online. You can see this full step-by-step -step product development process by going to theproductstartup.com and clicking on start. So if you'd like to get these takeaways in your inbox every week, just go to theproductstartup.com, scroll to the footer of any page, and sign up to the weekly wrap-up. At the end of the week, you'll get my three takeaways for each guest, along with interesting articles, free tools, inspiring innovations to help you with your own product startup. If you'd like to pitch your product on the show or just leave me feedback or questions, leave me a voicemail at 681-321-1115. Join me next time as I speak with Elise Daniels. She took an idea for fully customizable jackets and turned it into a million-dollar business. So tune in next week to hear that episode. Thanks again for joining me today. I hope that you're taking action on your products and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Mako Design and Invent the first firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end -end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product businesses. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to macodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Mako Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.